You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. It was a long walk in wet heat from my hotel on the Campo di Fiore to the Vatican. I made the trip even longer by taking the scenic route through the Piazza Navona, across the Ponte Umberto, and along the banks of the Tiber, where it flowed foamy and murky green, past the Castle San Angelo. As anyone who has spent even a night in Rome between early May and late June knows, during these weeks the Eternal City seems gripped by a pandemic of sexual intoxication. Already preoccupied with apprehension of a wedding date that had begun to feel uncomfortably close, I felt more agitated and feral with each passing second. Even on the shady side of Bernini's stupendous Fountain of Four Rivers, my favorite Roman resting place, I found my gaze rising through the mist again and again to meet the large-eyed stares of lush signorinas who seemed to overflow both their summer dresses and their boyfriend's arms. I started to sober up upon arriving at the Via della Conciliazione, the broad boulevard between raised walkways and sunken service roads that is the Vatican's main street, confronting each person who approaches with a point-blank view of St. Peter's. As instructed, I veered left at the edge of the cathedral square, onto a narrow, shady street called Borgo Santo Spirito. Every trace of my voluptuary's reverie was dissipated by the time I stepped inside the coffin-sized, stainless steel-lined, and tortuously slow elevator that lifted me, literally inch by inch, to the floor where I would find the office of Father Peter Gumpel. The antiseptic marble floors, the dim lighting, the heavy air of silence in which my footsteps echoed like whip cracks, all lent the interior of the building an oppressively institutional air. One sensed that disturbing experiments of an arcane nature were being conducted behind the opaque glass of the doors that lined a broad but empty hallway. When I entered Father Gumpel's office, though, I found the priest seated at a magnificent hand-carved desk in front of a high window thrown open to reveal an exquisite garden that no one walking by on the street could possibly have imagined. The street was a living homage to the possibility of perfection, in which sculpted cypress trees stood embanked by flowering shrubs so perfectly groomed they looked as if they had been clipped not by garden shears, but with barber scissors. It was an experience I would have again and again at the Vatican, this lonely walk down a forbidding corridor that led eventually to an open window filled with secret beauty. Randall Sullivan is a contributing editor to Rolling Stone. He's the author of The Miracle Detective, the story of his personal investigation into the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary seen in Medjugorje, Bosnia-Herzegovina. Welcome to the show, Randall. Thanks for having me. Randall, how did your journey towards this book begin? What got you interested in this subject? I was drawn in initially by uh, an event that happened near... uh, the place where I grew up in Oregon. This was in northeastern Oregon in a uh, trailer park that was occupied by mostly Mexican-Americans. And uh, one young woman claimed to have seen an apparition of the Virgin Mary that another thousand people claimed that they had seen also. And it it had obviously an enormous and intense effect on these people. And by the time I got there, the apparition had ended, but just from talking to them about how affected they were by it and and how genuine they seemed and that the girl who was the central figure was seemed very confused and couldn't understand what had happened and why it had happened to her because she wasn't a religious person and and there was just something about it that touched me and made me and at the same time I found out the church had placed this quote under investigation and I thought how would you investigate something like this and one thing led to another and I found myself in Rome at the Vatican 
And once I got there, you know, they gradually, slowly revealed to me sort of the ranking of these events. And there was one that was clearly at the very top in modern times, and that was this event in Bosnia-Herzegovina at a village called Medjugorje. Tell us about the people you met in the Vatican. I was fascinated by the history of the office that actually investigates miracles. That just flabbergasted me. Actually, it, it, well, it, something they don't really like to talk about it is that it, it originated in the Inquisition. Uh, because they were tr at that time trying to distinguish um, sort of good miracles from bad miracles, uh, uh, miracles from God and miracles from Satan. And, and uh, uh, that part of it is, is in, in the distant past, but, but it is still in the origins. And it's, you know, I'd, I'd arrived in Rome with the attitude that, well, either these things uh, are real. I mean, there's three explanations. Either the people are crazy, they're lying, or it's real. The Vatican adds a fourth, which is the possibility of demonic influence. And, of course, as I went along, I realized that these things mix and act. There can be a number of elements going on at once. Could you tell us about the situation that is seems typical to these encounters, which is a kind of fractured populace with all sorts of schisms? It seems to me that it's a well, real common... I, I think it often is. It's certainly the two most compelling of these events to the church and I think even to outside investigators that happen uh, during the last half of the 20th century uh, happen in Medjugorje, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and in Kibeho, Rwanda. And in both places, the visionaries who were reporting these visions early on uh, began warning of terrible things to come and that people needed to make peace. And um, uh, if they didn't, there were going to be horrible consequences, and in both places exactly 10 years afterward, they were awash in the two worst genocides since World War II. These visions are often accompanied by apocalypse, but we tend to think of apocalypse in the total biblical terms, the end of the world. But it doesn't. apocalypse doesn't have to be an end of the world, does it? Well, that's one of the things I think I came to. In, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, these visionaries clearly think they are talking about Apocalypse with a capital A, but I came to think that maybe what they were talking about was Apocalypse with a lower case A, because I really do think that they had some precognition of the war and of what was coming uh, in that area, and that it had something to do with it. I mean, I don't know for sure, obviously, and I don't, I don't dismiss them, because I take that group of people um, to heart to some degree. I mean, they're, uh, what's happened there is clearly profound beyond all explanation. But, uh, uh, you know, I, as an outsider, and, you know, maybe it is my Western point of view, but I, I came to think that they perhaps were, were projecting it onto a larger scale than it actually was. Could you tell us how it feels for you? You started out as a skeptic, I, I, I would describe. Is that correct? I would say I was a secular person uh, with a somewhat skeptical attitude, and I certainly didn't have a religious or Christian background. I was raised by two atheists. But that's not how you ended up, is it? No, it's not. I mean, uh, the, the, the book, I didn't actually intend for this to be an autobiography, and, and I think ultimately that's what it became. It's a, actually when the uh, contemporary authors asked me to give them a genre for this because they couldn't name one, I said, well, why don't you call it an investigative autobiography, because <laughs> it is a bit of, of both. But uh, uh, no, I, the experiences I had there 
I wrestled with for years afterward and finally came to the conclusion that I was never going to fully understand them or be able to categorize them. But what happened to me subjectively, uh, I had to, that was the most real thing I could come away with. And what happened to me subjectively was a religious conversion. Boy, could you tell us a little bit, give our listeners a little bit of the background about the, the apparitions, the seers, what happened the basics. It actually it began in 1981 under a communist regime that immediately tried to repress it because they all they to them any anything that had to do with the religious expression was going to stir up uh, you know the competing interests of the Serbian Orthodox, the Muslims, and the Croatian Catholics. And this was in a Catholic context, so they saw it as a burgeoning uh, Croatian independence. So they and and at that time anyway, religious demonstrations of any kind outside were prohibited. And when Medjugorje happened, there were so many profound observable events around it, things that could conceivably be called paranormal. I mean, these kids, the six of them, uh, exhibited abilities that are, couldn't be explained any other way. Either They were either paranormal or supernatural because there isn't another conceivable explanation for the things they did. Now, hold on for a second. Could you distinguish for us what you mean, the difference between paranormal and supernatural? Paranormal is... Um, something that occurs as a result of a, a capacity of the human mind that we don't understand yet. Supernatural is conceived to come from outside agency, that is, God. Okay. So these, these uh, kids, tell us about the, the seers. The seers themselves at that time ranged in age from 11 to 16, four girls and two boys. Interestingly, they were not um, the religious kids of the village. Uh, the two, two girls it started with uh, happened to them when they'd uh, gone outside to smoke cigarettes and sing pop songs that they'd heard illicitly on the radio <laughs> and uh, were walking by this mountain or hill really called Barbado, which was a really just a giant mound of, of huge rocks and thorn bushes, which are a, about as deadly a plant as you can imagine. Um, and they were walking by and, and said they saw a woman a luminous woman on the hillside covering and uncovering a baby. Then the other four said they saw it too, although that process was somewhat drawn out uh, for, the, for the other four to arrive at that point. Um, but anyway, she drew them up the hill. And one of the stories that I heard immediately from someone I got fairly friend, friendly with there, he'd been uh, the best athlete that this area had ever produced. He was a champion sprinter on his way to the Olympic team at that time. And uh, at this, to get to the top of this hill, for even the most rugged man in the village, and, and he was the fastest runner in the village, was like a half hour to get to the top. These kids were getting to the top in five minutes. They were taking, he, he, he was falling up the hillside, he said, and he was watching them take these 15-foot strides, and they just seemed to be flying. And they were barefoot, too, which, I mean, your feet would have been torn to shreds on that, in that environment. And he, he, he became completely convinced that this was absolutely true by the time he got up to the top much later than them and found them praying and burst into tears and became a complete and many people did actually were converted on the spot just by observing that this is a common event though this has happened this fast motion has happened in some of these other cases hasn't it one other where it's been noted a lot of remarkable uh, physical capacities or paranormal abilities these kids in a place called garabandal spain um, and they will they were able to move in these enormous strides too and to do some other things that are completely 
inexplicable like run backwards on their knees when the apparitions were over at, at an incredibly fast pace and during the apparitions they took on a physical density uh, the, the seers in Kibeha Rwanda did that too where people could not lift them uh, or move them and what that is is hard to say and in Medjug as it happens Medjugorje is the most scientifically and medically investigated purported supernatural event in history so there's a huge trove of stuff uh, to draw upon data to draw upon uh, to try to make a conclusion about what it is but I mean just going through that is an overwhelming experience because team after team after team of doctors and scientists came many of them intending to debunk it and some ordered to actually to debunk it by the communist regime and without exception they all said this is completely inexplicable Many of them made the next jump to say this has to be supernatural or from God. But the others, many just stopped at this is beyond human explanation and we've never seen anything like it. This started out in 1981. When did you arrive in Medjugorje? I arrived in 1995 technically as a war correspondent for Rolling Stone. That was how I got into the country. Um, and it was at the height of the war. And, and I do think that the wartime atmosphere was contributed to the intensity of my experience and, and to what it felt like to be there at that time. But it was still, I mean, I think in a way that was almost the peak. Of course, that, I think that because it was the peak for me. But, but uh, uh, I, I think when the war came to a climax, so did the event in Medjugorje. But that may not be true. So these visions went on for 15 years? That's a long they, time. They, they're still it? going on. Still yeah. going on. There's, of the six, three are still having visions. I mean, the, the apocalyptic prophecy that's at the core of Medjugorje is that there are 10 secrets that they're being given about the end of the world as we know it. Um, the end of time, actually, is what it, how they put it. And, and uh, not the end of the world. They, they, they consistently make that distinction. It's not the end of the world. It's just the end of time. And... and uh, that when all six of them have all ten secrets, that's when the secrets will begin to unfold toward the end of time. Tell us a little bit about the secrets, because this happened at uh, Fatima? Fatima had three secrets uh, in a different—they were of a different nature. They weren't as much—they weren't as apocalyptic. Uh, Garabandal, Spain, was apocalyptic in a similar way, and I think the Church does think that there's those who believe in this, and those who believe in this include the Pope— uh, think that there's a connection between Garabandal and Medjugorje. We still haven't heard the third secret from Fatima. Oh yes, we actually they did reveal it, and it was a bit they of an did. it was a bit of an anticlimax, really. I mean, because it had to do with the attempt on the Pope's life. Okay, uh, which he believes he believes firmly believes that his life was saved by the Virgin of Fatima, and there's a you know a, an external uh, reason that he thinks that. I mean, he has his own internal reasons. He's the most Marian priest. Uh, I mean, Pope in in modern history, maybe ever. But uh, he was going through the crowd the day of the assassination attempt, and just at the moment um, he was shot, he suddenly saw this young girl wearing a Virgin of Fatima medal and leaned over toward her, and that movement uh, made the gunshot strike him a little to the side. And even though he was hit, I think, two or three times, and in the torso, they didn't the target wasn't as exact as it should have been, and so he survived it and, and became convinced that his life was saved and then read the third secret of Fatima, which was connected to this, and decided that he, he, would, re he would reveal it to the public, and so did. I'm wondering if you'd want to talk about 
the paranormal aspects of this experience because they seem there's some common things that happen here in all with these that are common to other paranormal experiences. Cold is present, I believe. Um, the moving faster than normal, the levitation. Um, even the silver fog that is mentioned by the pilots that prevented them from bombing Medjugorje right. is a, the first thing I thought was Flight uh, 17 lost in the so-called Bermuda Triangle. Well, I, w- I want to make it clear I'm not advocating a paranormal point of view, but I, ha- I know I have to be open to it. I, I tend to actually believe the supernatural explanation mm-hmm. of Medjugorje, but I'm aware that um, I don't know the, fully know the distinction, and neither does anybody else, and that, yes, there are a lot of these, uh, the particulars of this do accord with other, what have been described as, as uh, paranormal events. When the, uh, during their uh, ecstasies, the seers do get, ice cold. Their hands are like as cold as blocks of ice. Uh, they take on an, uh, an inordinate physical density in terms of like they seem to, gravity seems to be multiplied in them. But they also uh, register a level of uh, disassociation from the world. That I think that the, the two things that most impress the doctors who have studied them, other than their apparent mental health, when they're not in their ecstasy. So I think that actually is the thing that's most impressed the, the people who've come to examine them, the psychiatrists especially. Um, that is, their mental health is, is, is fine. Their, their mental health is excellent, and, and they don't seem to have fallen prey to any... The, the leading expert on religious her- hysteria in Europe, actually, came, who's an about atheist, came to, to debunk them. I'll tell you that story in a second. But anyway, the, 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 with the medical doctors, initially, like the communists took a somewhat crude approach, but it was, you know, you'd th- it was actually creative uh, they tried to jar them out of the uh, out of their ecstasy because they'd get these hugely dilated eyes by waiting till they were in the ecstasy then wheeling a film camera cinema cinema cameras they called it with a thousand watt bulb and pr- putting it right up against their eyes and turning it on in a flash and so hitting them with a thousand watt bulb right in the eyes and there was no reaction so that tells you the level of disassociation that they were in uh, but I, I think the Western doctors have been most impressed by the brain studies because there's this whole alpha-beta relationship of brain waves. And they had anticipated, usually when you go into a trance state, a dream state, you, you, the, the beta waves tend to, which are a more passive part of the brain, tend to increase, and the alpha, more active part of the brain, tends to decrease. But in th- these kids, in the ecstasies, or in a pure alpha state, there's no beta waves at all. So it just didn't make sense to any of the uh, uh, neuroscientists who studied them. Could you tell us a little bit about what it feels like to meet these people? You met them. Yeah, I stayed in Mariana's, who is, Mariana is sort of the central of the six, and she's the one who keeps the secrets and will reveal them, supposedly. Maybe you should back up and just tell us a little bit about the seers, the the six seers, who they are. Give us an idea of their characters. Well, Well, of the six, five are really just peasants kids i mean they're they're certainly no more than average intelligence and uh, not educated struggled in school i mean they were not remarkable children uh, except perhaps in character i mean the one thing interestingly that these kids all had a reputation for was being very honest very good kids in that way but not religious not good in school not particularly remarkable one of them ivana was considered very beautiful but you know only average intelligence mariana was from sarajevo and she was educated, more accomplished, more sophisticated than the others. So she does sort of stand out from from the other five. Uh, there's two boys, uh, Ivan, 
who I would guess is at best of average intelligence and and, uh, uh, and probably the most problematic of the six for a lot of people, including me. And Yaakov, who was the youngest, um, and uh, has a there's there's a there's a deep and sweet quality to him. I mean, he's he's a touching presence. Uh, but the two that really affected me most profoundly were Vichka uh, and uh, Mariana. And Vichka, at the time these hap- the apparition started, she was known as the most radical and outspoken girl in the village. She dared to wear blue jeans. That was her greatest. Uh, uh, transgression which was considered completely forbidden by the because com- it was a communist considered them blue jeans a symbol of western decadence and she insisted on wearing blue jeans and she got into various scrapes with the communist authorities where she would go right to the edge of getting into major trouble and uh, but she is now I mean, an incredibly impressive person to be around I, she actually the first time I sat down with her we were doing a supposed interview and we got about 20 minutes in and I, I stopped being able to talk I mean, I just, I don't know what it was, but I just went quiet. It wasn't a spooky or scary thing. I just couldn't summon up any words. And it wasn't like my voice box was frozen or anything. I just couldn't find the will to speak. And so she just, she'd promised me an hour. So she just sat there with me for 40 minutes in total silence. (laughs) And it was really a powerful experience. There's some talk, of course, a lot of the, the skeptics wanted to, make this a mental illness many tried i mean the, uh, well we're on to the story of the professor manginelli who who was uh, uh sent there really to debunk the apparitions he was considered the leading expert in europe on religious hysteria as a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist and it tells you something about the way that uh, the people in Medjugorje, the priests in Medjugorje, have handled this that they gave him full access to the six and he got to spend a solid month with them so he then went home and began to write his report, but he'd kind of lost enthusiasm for the report, although it came out, you know, yes, these, these children are mentally healthy and they're in a remarkable state, and I don't know what to say about it. It's, it's uh, uh, I can't, I'm not going to say it's supernatural, but it's beyond my ability to explain it any other way. It kind of a, that neutral report, but as he was writing it, uh, what he said later was that uh, uh, he kept remembering what happened during the apparitions. He would, he would be in the apparition room with them, and there was this mulberry tree outside that was filled with birds, and they'd be chirping and chirping, you know, really loud. They would be like a chorus of birds, very loud. And as soon as the apparition would start, the birds would go absolutely silent in the tree. And he said he couldn't stop thinking about the silence of those birds. So a month after he went home, this famous atheist converted to Catholicism. And you hear these kinds of stories about the effects on people who came there to debunk this place and those kids again and again, and it that begins to get to you too. Well, it's interesting to me, and I, it seems like it could be described in a way as a contagious mental illness. Well, because the skeptics come there, it and meet another skeptic who's already acquired the bug and become converted. Well, you know, well, that's what the bishop who is completely opposed to it calls it. Of course, he's come up with any you know any number of explanations to you know, and and I'm no one to talk because I caught the disease. But, but now, tell uh, us about this bishop. <laughs> this guy is very bishop, funny. Bishop Zanich. Uh, well, initially he was he was all for the apparitions, but then the communists took him in and said, "You will stop this, or else." And so he turned against the apparitions to save his own skin. But uh, e- then, even after the communist regime was replaced, he was in too deep. He'd he'd been he'd become completely opposed to it. He uh, and and his 
his reputation was on the line, so he just became this adamant opponent of it. But he would change his, the basis of his opposition, it seems like month by month, he'd come up with a new, a new explanation for what was wrong with it. But at one point when he sent uh, uh, the person he thought was really going to, actually one of two, he sent who he thought was really going to deconstruct it, uh, this discerner of the spirits who was, you know, had uh, already said, oh, I know there's no nothing going on there and actually wrote a report to send to the Vatican without going to visit the kids and uh, the bishop said no no you're gonna have to go visit them I mean just go talk to them and then you can well, then we'll send the report to the Vatican so he went to talk to them and, and then he was converted too. he, he caught the disease too so uh, the, the bishop decided to essentially that this must be some kind of a contagious mental illness tell us how you felt that what started to move you uh, tell us about your emotional journey. Well, I, you know, I, I had experiences there that I have never been able to explain to myself. I've never come to a, um, a final definition of what took place. I was never able to, but, um, but. I, I, I know, I know what, I know how they felt on a subjective level, and that ultimately is what I've uh, fallen back on. And on a subjective level, they were profound supernatural mystical visions that that um can you describe them to us the the, the, well, the setting yes i can it, it's 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 it, it is always difficult to talk about it because i i don't know for certain what it is i'm saying i don't know what happened but i know how it felt um but the one that was most powerful was uh the first time i sat down with mariana for a an interview i just come from vichka and i felt oh i i i, I really let her overwhelm me. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be much tougher with Mariana. So, uh, I got into a very aggressive interrogation of her and, um, she let it go on for quite a while. And finally she said, I know why you come to me. You are unbeliever. And I said, well, I wouldn't say that. She said, so you are a believer. And well, I wouldn't say that either. Uh, she said, well, we must end this. You must go until you know what you believe. You must go. And I tried to keep it going, the conversation going, but I couldn't. And she said, no, you have to go. Go to the mountain. Go to cross. The central feature of Medjugorje is this mountain called Krizovac, which is mount, means mountain of the cross. Uh, and back in 1933, the, these villagers built this, erected this fantastically enormous cross on top of this mountain, which before then was known as the Mountain of Thunder. What that village was known for was these hellacious thunderstorms that devastated the crops and destroyed the economy of the village and the story locally i mean I, there's no way to verify it is that once the cross went up the thunderstorms didn't completely end but they almost ended and then the ones that they had were much more were much lighter much less devastating well that's their story so anyway i i decided I, I actually i stormed out of her house not even knowing where i was going i ended up on the path to the mountain and began to climb it it was about 100 degrees that day I was wearing a tank top and shorts, and it was just broiling, and there was nothing in the sky but this broiling sun. And there was nobody else on the mountain because it was so hot, only a lunatic would have been out there. Um, anyway, I got about maybe a third of the way up the mountain when I noticed that there was this thick knot of black clouds forming right at the peak of the mountain. And it was the sky was still clear everywhere else. It was a fairly localized massing of clouds. 
And I didn't get much further when this, I was engulfed in this absolutely terrifying thunder and lightning storm. And there were lightning strikes hitting all around me, not hitting me, but I mean, hitting close. And I, I was absolutely convinced this was it. And, and I became also absolutely convinced in my terror that uh, a God of wrath was about to give me the ultimate lesson. And uh, so, but I kept going up the mountain because I, I just felt I couldn't turn back. And I got maybe a little more than halfway up when I came upon this group of nuns singing in French and kneeling in front of a cross. I was just so grateful that there was somebody else on the mountain that I sort of continued up the mountain near them. When I got to the top, I was in a completely uh, transfigured state, you know, overwhelmed emotionally. Uh, and so I got down on my knees to pray and, and to say, I'm sorry, you're right. I, I realize that you are there. A and in that moment, this young woman walked up to me, who I assumed was with the nuns. And uh, she was wearing a hat. And she took the hat off and put it on my head, I guess, to cover my, because I was sopping wet. And she laid um, a cloth across my shoulders, I guess, to protect me from the wet and cold. For some reason, I was kneeling there wearing her hat and her cloth, and I burst out in laughter. I mean, I was just overwhelmed by this sense of relief that I wasn't going to die and that, the, you know, and that the, uh, my sense of this vengeful God had, would, had been so far off the point, and what I'd been shown was this, the kindness of this young woman. And, uh, it, for me, it was a religious experience. Some time passed, I, and that's the part that I'm, I puzzle over. I d it didn't seem like it was very much time, but I remember... I stopped laughing, and I looked around, and no one else was there. So I assumed that the, the nuns and the girl had headed down the mountain. I began to sprint down the mountain after them. And one thing, when, when I was there, many people remarked upon how fast I was on the mountain, on the rocks, because I'd done a lot of, of uh, rock climbing, rock running. So I couldn't find them. I got all the way to the bottom, thought somehow, I'm, I mean, maybe they got off to the side. Maybe it's possible I passed them. So I went back up the mountain, couldn't find them again waited at the bottom for them. They never came down. I left the cloth and the hat on a rock at the bottom of the mountain, went into the village to search for them, couldn't find them anywhere. Finally, at that point, I was shaken and thinking, what just happened? Who were they? And I never could verify it. And of course, I've come up with, you know, plausible, rational explanations for how they may have slipped past me. And I, you know, they were real people and I didn't, I couldn't find them. But there's always been a part of me that felt they weren't real people. They were spirits of some kind. And, and uh, so I hung, I've hung, I had to hang in that suspension, I guess, of disbelief and belief for a long time before I finally came to the realization that I was never going to know the answer to that. And, um, you know, there was always going to be a rational part of me that doubted it. And there was always going to be this other mystical part of me that believed it. And I was going to have to let them uh, both be, you know, live, live in doubt but not give up faith. And I really, that is where I ended the book, in a sense. Well, that's very interesting. That's a powerful report. I'm wondering, the laughter. That was a, that was a reaction you had more than once, wasn't it? Uh, it seemed to be something that happened to me um, when I had these intense experiences. Sometimes, I mean, when I met the Pope, that turned into a, a slapstick comedy. Uh, uh, and that was another one of those experiences where I, it felt, but it felt like holy laughter. I mean, I, I had this tremendous sense of liberation, although it was a different kind of thing with that. But uh, I had all this expectation about meeting the Pope and that, you know, somehow answers were going to be uh, 
provided to me to this tension that had built up between my my doubt and my and my faith or you know between what I felt had happened to me and what I knew couldn't have happened to me and uh, so you know, this meeting was just loaded with portent for me and it turned into absolute slapstick comedy <laughs> and well what happened tell us well it's it, it's I mean it's in the book but uh, I was part of a group and led by this woman who's one of the wealthiest patrons of the Vatican. She has quite a story behind her anyway. I won't go into it, but I mean, she's a, she is a figure of, of uh, who, who you know, you'd think I would have made her up in, you know, metafiction or something. But uh, she basically hijacked the moment, ran up to the Pope ahead. I was with the group we were in and began to clasp his hand. And, and you know, I mean, he was completely overwhelmed by her. The physical intensity of it, she pulls this envelope out of the folds of her clothing that's stuffed with cash and begins to say, Dolere, Dolere, as she's trying to hand it to him. <laughs> and, and she was an American, by the way, but of Italian origin. She owns gigantic supermarket chain. Uh, but um, anyway, she squeezed so hard on his hand that she pulled off the ring. Now, the papal ring is the most venerated object in Catholicism, the ring of the fisherman, as it's called, only worn by the popes. She pulled it off his hand, and it fell to the ground and began to roll across the, <laughs> the paving stones as the Swiss guards and the security people all went berserk. And people, I mean, it was just a scene of, of <laughs> unbelievable chaos that... No, and but no, no one else was finding it the least bit amusing. And I, and in the moment, I was just, and as it happened, I was positioned right behind the Pope. I had my hand on his shoulder, and I was watching it all, right, literally almost through his eyes. And uh, so I realized that, that my moment was gone because this, the the security guards and the you know were hustling us out of there. Then we were like a disaster, and I just happened to catch his eye for a second and just sort of twinkled with bemusement. You know, that was what I got after what I'd been expecting. Some, and as I was walking out. Uh, I just burst into laughter, that same laugh of, of you know, uh, I think it was the, the, the experience of God as this, uh, as this wild and free kind of uh, presence, not, not the, the solemn presence that uh, so many people imagine. Wow. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about being in the midst of the most violent dangerous and holy place on earth that the would be Medjugorje Medjugorje <laughs> the, the, the war you know the, the violence of it surrounded Medjugorje you'd see it you'd feel it around you there but Medjugorje had been strangely protected itself you'd feel it especially when the uh, guerrilla forces would come in to eat because there's no law there so when the uh, when these armed men, you know, I mean, you know, these Uzi carrying thugs would come in, you'd realize, yeah, you're surrounded by people who can kill you anytime they want to and get away with it. Uh, but you you would also feel that you were in this kind of cocoon. But when you go out eight miles away to Mostar, which was along with Sarajevo, they were the two most devastated cities in Bosnia. You'd realize we're right next to the worst horror imaginable, and it would it would almost feel like you stepped through you know, some, uh, into another dimension of life. And, and uh, Mostar was, it was, a, it was a shock to me. I'd never seen war, really. I'd never really seen war, and I'd never seen horror on that scale. So the, the first impact of Mostar just completely took my breath away. And, uh, uh, and it's a, it was such an odd situation because you're, like, living in this lottery. It, by that time, the, uh, the 
constant bombardment had ended, so there were just some snipers, and and they'd lo and the Serbs would lob, lob in some uh, uh, bombs, rockets, you know, maybe once or twice a day. So I mean, you know, f you knew three or four people were going to get it every day, but nobody knew who they were, and so you'd feel like we were all walking around looking at each other, thinking who's going to get it today, and it just lent such a surreal intensity to the place, uh, and you know, physic just the the level of devastation I wouldn't have believed that anything other anything smaller than a nuclear weapon could have done that much physical damage I I'm still it still amazes me to think that conventional weapons could have done this level of disruption destruction because I mean it was rubble and uh, and really the most affecting thing were the little kids there were all these orphans five six seven eight years old living on the street and they were the hardest eyed toughest kids you could ever imagine. You'd drive in and they'd be lining the road and they'd be standing there six years old smoking cigarettes and flipping you off and pretending to shoot you and uh, just hard-eyed and, and realizing what they'd been through. I mean, I met one early on who'd come out of the cellars uh, at age six with snow-white hair. The bombardment had been that intense and it had affected him that deeply. So you, it was, the horror of it was overwhelming. And, and yet right next to it was Medjugorje. And Medjugorje had become this sanctuary of peace that somehow had been almost completely insulated from the, from the war. I mean, there had actually, there had been murders in the parish around the village itself, quite a few I found out later uh, that were connected to this kind of ethnic uh, strife. But uh, the village itself, uh, the one time that, it was ever bombed, only some animals were killed. And then the one time it was really supposed to get it, the Serbs sent this team of jets. They reported back, the Serbian pilots, that uh, they'd gotten lost in the silver fog and couldn't see the village. So, of course, the villagers said, Our Lady has protected us. But, you know, whatever it was, the fact is, while everything around them was, was getting leveled, they were virtually untouched. You described this apocalyptic scene outside of Medjugorje. And I have to presume that the seers saw this. Did they ever get the sense that you had that the apocalypse they were foreseeing was the one that was right around them? No. Th in fact, they specifically told me that wasn't the case and that they, they tried to disabuse me of that notion because they... And I went back through the records and they had actually said this early on. <coughs> um, the... Uh, one of the priests, you know, they were taking questions from the priests and asking the, you know, their vision uh, about it. And one of the questions they were supposed to ask, will Croatia ever be free? Because this were mainly Croatian peasants in this village. A and uh, the answer was yes, after a small war. So to them, they said 400,000 have been killed. That's a small war. So imagine what the big events are going to be. The ethnic strife that was apparent in Bosnia-Herzegovina was also present in Rwanda. It was. It was even more horrific in R Rwanda. Tell and, us a little bit about that situation. I don't know anything about it. Well, the, you know about Rwanda, I'm yes. sure. But, but the, the seers there, I mean, the, the whole quality of those apparitions had a, had, had a very different quality. The chief chronicler of it was this Belgian priest who was there at the time. And, you know, he attributed it to, quote, the African psychology. And I don't know if that's, but they were clearly different in terms of the physical manifestations. But many of these paranormal qualities, if that's what you want to call them, um, 
and I'm not sure I do, but I, I accept that that could be a valid description. Um, they exhibited as well. They, they would go and they would say they were going to go on these spiritual journeys and they would go into a coma so deep that they were like medically dead. You could barely detect a heartbeat. Um, they, they were completely quiescent. Uh, they took no food or water, obviously, but they, they were just like the dead for, you know, often days at a time. And, uh, people weren't able to move them. That was one of the other things is that they'd get like 10 men to see if they could, you know, just shift their weight a little and they couldn't budge them at all. And these were young girls, you know, weighed maybe a hundred pounds or less. Um, so there were all these things connected to it and it, and they were being warned of, of particular, uh, sins that they were going to have to give up or, or something terrible was coming. And it, as it happened, that village itself was, uh, hit by the, by the genocide, and uh, some of the seers themselves were killed as well. Could you talk a little bit about what happened to you personally just as you were leaving Medjugorje when you were in Rome, the last scene? Mm. Well, I, I, I should preface that by saying one of the last things that happened to me in Medjugorje was uh, being witness to this public exorcism at, a, at an outdoor mass that was without doubt the most terrifying thing I've ever seen and confusing as well. Describe it to us. Well, I was, you know, I was in the crowd at this outdoor mass uh, and, and, and I'd already been having, obviously, this very intense experience. And as Father Slavko, who was the great holy man of Medjugorje, and he really was the holiest man I've ever met, uh, he was going through the crowd with the monstrance, which is, contains supposedly the consecrated host. Um, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I supposedly I regret saying that, but I'm not a Catholic and they aren't. And in, in the Catholic tradition, it was a consecrated host and people begin to have these physical reactions to its presence. And I, be, I begin to hear these uh, expletives, uh, you know, you know, people would be saying, you know, F Jesus, you know, and, and things like that. And they'd be shrieking. There'd be these barks and yelps and strange, scary noises. But then very near me, this young woman really went into an extreme reaction. She began the cursing, um, and then she began foaming at the mouth, and she began, the foam, or whatever it was that came out of her, was just copious beyond belief. I was, I, I, I was, I was in a complete state of shock just watching it come out of her. And this whole group gathered around her and began to perform an exorcism. And so the foam continued, and the, 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 the noises she was making, these guttural noises that I, I could not have produced them without shredding my larynx, but it went on and on with her. Actually, it started with a cough. That's what it started with, this cough that went on and on and on. It sounded like she was trying to bring up an organ. It was this dry, deep cough. Uh, then the foam, then the, then the, uh, uh, you know, then the guttural sounds, then she, her body contorted into all these you know, really disturbing positions, and I was still, I, actually, I don't think I was thinking anything. Later, I was trying to tell myself that this could have been a some kind of psychological phenomena, but the last thing that happened when in the final you know, exhalation or, or expulsion of whatever it was, was this smell that came out of her that was so horrible. It was, be, I mean, I couldn't even be, I was in such shock, I couldn't even be sickened by it. The smell was so awful and and uh, as soon as that smell came out whatever it was uh, she calmed down 
They managed to sort of soothe her. They got her on her feet. And she walked away and she seemed normal. And I saw her later and she was like this radiant, smiling teenage girl. She was a teenage girl. Um, I don't know what it was, and but it was completely overwhelming to witness. And uh, so I think, you know, whatever predisposition that, that uh, created in me, I, I, you know, I've, something I've had to turn over in my mind, but I was very powerfully affected by it. I got to Rome on my way back home, and I was standing actually near the Piazza Navona, and uh, I saw this man come walking through the crowd, and I don't know why he stood out to me other than that he was incredibly dapper. He was dressed, you know, in, in uh, I mean, really sharp, and everything was just perfect about him. The cravat, the, the perfectly shined, uh, pointy-toed shoes, and but then when he got close, I, his face suddenly disturbed me. He just had this kind of malevolent sneer on his face. Uh, and I heard he, then I heard him talking, and he was speaking in a language that wasn't Italian. I didn't recognize it, but he, it just sounded like <laughs> everything about him sounded like, you know, he was cursing or, th you know, something. But, but, he, but he was sort of half grinning. And, I mean, I, I, it just seemed, it was like what you'd sort of, the only thing I've time I've seen something like that would maybe be in a you know a psychotic you know street person occasionally I've seen that quality but this was a man dressed to the nines in the most expensive clothes and I was wondering why the people around me weren't reacting to this guy and moving because nobody seemed to hear him and and or to notice him and, and that was making me feel a little odd and uh, suddenly he got close and I saw that he was staring at me the, the whole time and uh, and he was just giving me this sort of evil grin and talking the whole time. I couldn't understand anything he was saying because it was, a, I don't know what language it was in. And I couldn't tell you to this day. Um, and I just had this absolute conviction in that moment that he wasn't human. Subjective, obviously. And, uh, uh, but I also felt this real calm feeling of, you know, I'm out of his reach. And I said something like that, something like, you can't touch me, uh, to him. And then suddenly I heard what he said. I could understand what he said. And what he said was, I'll catch you later. Wow, that sounds like, a, <laughs> sounds like something out of a John Carpenter movie. <laughs> well, it, it, anyway, that, was a, that experience you know, was sort of the, the, the last, the closing blow uh, on on that trip, first trip to Medjugorje, and so I went home to digest it. And of course, I was coming up with every explanation possible. But I, you know, whatever it was, I went into a ultimately a really dark place, struggling with it all. That which is part of the reason that the book took so long. What happened when you returned home from Medjugorje? Well, I returned home really, I mean, feeling very religious, you know, spiritually changed. But I began to feel it slipping away from me, I think, in the, in the context of uh, the world I returned to. I mean, I work for Rolling Stone magazine. It's not exactly an environment that supports uh, uh, religious conversion, uh, especially in a Christian uh, form. Uh, and so, so there, I mean, whatever it was, the, it, I felt it began to slip away, and I just, it, it threw me into a despondency because I couldn't, you know, what had happened? Was I, you know, had I lost my mind? Was I in a deranged state? I didn't know what to make of what had happened. And, uh, I mean, I was really tortured by it, but I, but I knew that what had happened had moved me so profoundly. So I was in this 
con conflicted state that just got worse and worse and worse. I tried to resolve it with a second trip to Medjugorje uh, after the war. And maybe in a, in a way that second trip was a great disappointment because it didn't have remotely the level of fireworks and intensity that the first one did. But I, I did get some relief of some kind from the trip and what happened to me. So I was able to settle in, uh, settle down a little bit. Uh, but it was really only when I made the next, the last trip to Rome, the one where I met the Pope, and, and uh, uh, began to talk to some people who'd had, who'd had to deal with these kinds of experiences and was eventually led to the man who was considered the leading expert on, on mystical experiences and mystical theology in the Catholic Church, uh, who agreed to sit down with me and sort of mentor me, uh, that I was able to resolve I mean, at least move it to a place where I could live with it, to realize that um, the doubts were never going to go away. Uh, but that didn't mean I had to abandon faith. I could have both. I could have doubt and faith. You could hold contradictory beliefs. I could. I mean, and I actually found once I accepted my doubts, didn't fight them anymore, my faith increased. Could you tell us about this man? His name's Benedict Groschel. He's a... Uh, <laughs> He's, he's, he's a character so multifaceted. He's, he's a little daunting. I mean, he's a, he's a psychologist with a degree from Columbia. Uh, he's also the director of uh, spiritual development for the Diocese of New York. He runs many programs for the poor in the South Bronx. Um, and that's actually what he spend, gives most of his energy to. Uh, but he also, and he also writes many books, uh, slim books on weighty subjects, I call them. Uh, uh, but he is also the person who is called in from actually not just by the church, but by many people outside the church to investigate or take or look at what are considered very strange phenomena, basically to distinguish between the paranormal and the supernatural. And the, the interior, know, the paranormal being pa paranormal thi being things that are the products of the human mind, capacities of the human mind we don't understand yet. And and the supernatural being things that are not from human beings that come from divine will. Tell us. He's a, a Catholic priest, after all. Okay. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the Scottsdale incident. Well, Scottsdale, I went to Scottsdale because I had found out in Rome that of all of these events, it was the one um, that was taken most seriously by the church in the United States. I mean, it was controversial, but uh, the two. Um, uh, leading investigators of, the, of these things, a Frenchman named René Laurentin and an Irishman named Robert Ferrissey had both said they thought it was authentic. Many other people didn't agree. Uh, so I decided, well, I'm going to go look at something like this that's happened in the context of my own culture because, I mean, I, I may have become addled just by the sheer strangeness of what I experienced in Medjugorje. It was in the middle of the war. It was such a different place. I, you know, I, I think maybe I could see it in a more balanced way in my own culture. You know, that may or may not have been true. But, I mean, the event itself had a more mixed quality. In Medjugorje, you felt almost, I mean, on whatever that intuitive or that place where, where intellect, emotion, intuition meet, whatever that is, the organ of understanding, as Edgar Allan Poe called it, um, uh, I, you just feel immediately that it's pure in some way, that that these people are, absolutely giving you what they experience. I mean, you can talk about whatever the objective experience is, but this is what they're experiencing. But in Scottsdale, it was much more of a mix of the psychological and the spiritual. 
and and it was a more disturbing um, event, and and it was one that had ultimately fallen apart because of dissension among the visionaries. Although the central figure had remained above it all and was still uh, respected by everyone, but the others had all basically fallen into disarray, and it, and it had fallen apart. And she, the Gianna, the woman who was the central figure, had moved away to the East Coast, and that story was her, the story of her move was an, another <coughs> fantastic journey but uh anyway ultimately as and as it happened it, it took this took place during my last trip to rome which was last spring <laughs> the church eventually decided that they would rule against this and say that it wasn't supernatural we've been speaking with randall sullivan his newest book is the miracle detective and I believe that he may be referring to himself in that title. Isn't that the case, Randall? That is ultimately the case. I mean, I started off as a book uh, about, the, quote, the miracle detectives. I was having lunch with my publisher and, you know, was talking about, you know, these in investigations of these things. And I made a reference to them as miracle detectives. And he just went, I could see his eyes light up. Oh, yeah, that we're, that's got to be your next book. So, I mean, that really was what I started out to do. But... Um, eventually became more about my investigation because in some ways I took up where they left off. I mean, they, there were certain places they couldn't go and, and connections they couldn't make um, by the nature of you know their vocation as priests. And One of the things about these visitations, actually, is that the, the visionaries refer to things that aren't really accepted by the Catholic Church, but seemed to have a lot of veracity. Actually, Medjugorje's, what's, what has come out of Medjugorje has been thoroughly theologically vetted by the Catholic Church, and it's been approved. Oh, really? The, 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 every, anything, any one of these events uh, to be accepted by the Church, even implicitly, I mean, they, they never give an ab firm and final approval to any of these events. Lourdes, Fatima, Guadalupe, are the only three that they've even given implicit approval to, and Medjugorje is in line to perhaps be the fourth. But, um, but so it, it's essentially they go through a process of trying to disprove it, and if they can't disprove it, then they, they then they just let it be and 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 analyze it from a theological point of view. But, um, but Medjugorje, you know, they have agreed is theologically sound. I mean, a lot of people were troubled by the quote ecumenism of Medjugorje where, where, because the visionaries were saying uh, there was they, they quoted the Virgin Mary was who they were seeing as saying that um, religions were invented by man not by God and that all these religious distinctions didn't exist in God's eyes and uh, you know those people who had faith or, or who were holy didn't matter what their uh, religious commitment was well of course there were Catholic priests who were disturbed by this, but as it happens, it's a very ecumenical Catholic Church now, and the Pope is especially ecumenical. I mean, he's a Pope who has celebrated masses with the Himalayan lamas and Native American shamans and and Buddhists, and I mean, you name it. Um, so, uh, so, actually, it was considered to be not inconsistent with the Church, and when these kind of events have happened that they consider very powerful, the church has actually adjusted its theology occasionally. I mean, it's a very, I mean, it's something they don't like to admit, but they have actually 
adjusted their theology. In fact, I learned from Father Groschel that one of the signs within the church that something is genuine is that it goes a little bit against the prevailing theology of the church. It adds something different. Uh, someone, I mean, a, a mystic who is embraced by the church now as a Polish nun from the 1930s, uh, Sister Faustina, but when she, her visions were first reported, she was rejected by the church, even though they considered her a very holy and remarkable woman. Uh, because it was theologically inconsistent. It, it violated the dogma of the church. But when John Paul became Pope, being Polish, he said, I don't know that you translated those things properly. I want a new translation. So they went back through it, looked at what she put out differently. And, and anyway, in the end, they accepted this new dogma of prevenient grace, which is a, essentially of a more merciful God that is now part of, of Catholic dogma. And it really comes from the visions of this sister Faustina. Once again, Randall Sullivan is the author of The Miracle Detective. Thanks for talking with us, Randall. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.